0: MacuHealth with Micromicell, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromicell technology.
1: The All Eyes Visual VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The Visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe my sight one day. The first and only FDA approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a brilliant futures certified eye doctor near you. Do your patients know what presbyopia is? There are people who are afraid of the press. Have you talked to your patients about multifocal contact lenses?
2: I've heard the bifocal, but not multifocal.
1: Do you need help with your multifocal strategy? Learn more at the conclusion of this episode. Hello, I'm Dr. Kerry Gelb, and I want to say thank you for supporting the Open Your Eyes podcast. Our reach and growth was tremendous in 2022. Thanks to our amazing guests, sponsors, and loyal audience, we look forward to bringing you more riveting interviews in 2023. But first, I want to dedicate this episode to the great Dr. Art Epstein who the optometry world lost in 2022. I knew Art for over 20 years. Art was not only a great doctor, teacher, and family man, but Art was a wonderful friend and person. Art was always positive. Art loved optometry and his colleagues, and his colleagues loved Art. I often think of our great times together and our nutrition and dry eye discussions. Art, I know you're watching. We all miss you. You were certainly Optometry's teacher and mentor. Is dry eye an epidemic?
3: You know, that's that's an interesting question. When when I first relocated from New York, and uh, you know, perhaps the viewers can hear a little bit of that New York accent uh, to Arizona. I uh, I uh, felt that you know, dry eye was certainly more prevalent, uh, but as I delved further into dry eye, which is uh, obviously very common uh, uh, in the dry environment of Arizona, and eventually, uh, you know, soon after opening our practice, limited my practice to dry eye, uh, I began to realize that we're seeing numbers of patients that were unprecedented. We're seeing more and more dry eye than uh, we ever have in the past uh, in younger and younger populations uh, and much greater severity. Uh, and I, I know we're going to talk about a lot of the underlying causes, but uh, certainly the world has changed dramatically. Our bodies weren't designed uh, necessarily for the, for the world we live in today. Uh, and as a result, the eyes really take uh, a tremendous beating. Uh, and uh, the consequences uh, for many patients are the misery of dry eye. So what is actually
1: the definition of dry eye?
3: <laughs> that's, you, you've asked a great question. I spend a, a good part of my day uh, telling patients, I know, Mrs. Smith, you're here uh, because you've been told or you've uh, researched on Google uh, and can uh, concluded that you have dry eye, but the problem isn't uh, that your eyes are dry. It's not that you're not making enough tears. The problem is that your tears are uh, not functioning properly, you know, which kind of begs a a cascade of questions about what specifically that means, what are tears, what are tears do. Uh, fortunately, we, we have a good definition. Uh, we have a group called the Tear Film Ocular Surface Society. Uh, and every 10 years or so, they host a, uh, a large meeting of experts uh, called the Dry Eye Workshop. And the most recent definition, which is something I don't have memorized, I probably should have it tattooed on, you know, on my hand, but uh, uh, essentially incorporates, uh, you know, the uh, key concepts of you know tear dysfunction, uh, failure to maintain homeostasis, which is something we could talk a fair amount about because I think that's the genesis of a lot of diseases uh, today, uh, and uh, a number of other things, you know, changes in tear film uh, uh, qualities and, and, and abilities. Uh, but essentially, if, if you wanted to distill it down into the simplest form, it's uh, one of the most miserable disorders uh, that we face clinically. Because it's uh, you know chronic, it's progressive, it's it's persistent, uh, and it's very disruptive to normal function.
1: And what are some of the things you learned? You know, being a millennial and having to deal with an old guy like me making the film.
4: <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually learned a lot from you, it, it, both personally, but also in um, just with health. I mean the the my story arc in the film follows getting a diagnosis from you, uh, from a simple eye exam that you gave me, you were able to notice that I had some health issues, send me for blood work, and then confirm that I had some health issues. And then through your program, uh, your your 10 point plan, I was able to turn those issues around and, and get on a, a better track and reduce the inflammation in my body. So that's probably my biggest takeaway from the film. Um, the centenarians, uh, so just a little background on them. There, there's these groups of centenarians around the world. Uh, these are people that live to be 100 or older. Um, their lifestyle is so simple and they're so healthy to the point that they're outliving most of us, and uh, you'd probably be able to speak to this a lot better than me, but they really don't suffer from some of the same eye issues that we have. Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, when we spoke with the ophthalmologist there and, you know, they really have just one main ophthalmologist in town. uh, They have a couple of others that may travel through there, but they don't have macular degeneration and macular degeneration is really a disease of the West and it, we get it from inflammation and poor diet and, and you know, uh, processed 63% of the food that Americans eat is processed. So that's polyunsaturated fatty acids, which is really just inflammatory oils, way too much sugar, trans fats, and processed, uh, processed uh, wheat. And uh, we just eat too much of that, too much processed foods. And everything they eat basically has one ingredient. You know, they're eating a vegetable or they're eating their chickens that are running around on their property. And, you know, they lay the eggs or, you know, they kill them or whatever to eat the chicken. And uh, they go to the market and everything is very simple. They get water that's full with calcium and magnesium from these special places. And they sit outside a lot, which, you know, back home, you know, the dermatologists are telling you stay away from the sun, you're going to get skin cancer. But one of the surprises to me was these people are out in the sun all day long. The minute they get up, they, they go outside, sit in the sun, and they're chopping wood or whatever they're doing. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're living over 100, and they're as healthy as could be. My journey took me to many experts in many places, and perhaps the last place I thought I would end up finding answers was looking into the eyes of centenarians in remote parts of Costa Rica. I had come to Costa Rica to meet up with the self-proclaimed myopia maniac, Dr. Javier Prada Lopez. Before visiting the kids of Costa Rica to evaluate the growing epidemic of myopia, we joined Dr. Gaston Laporte and Jorge Vindas, a field researcher specializing in the life of centenarians. Our first stop was Maria Trinidad. She's 103, and cataracts have completely robbed her vision. (laughs) ¿Y
5: cómo está su vista?
6: muy eso. promedio, and you can see how deep is that cataract, you
3: mm-hmm.
6: see?
1: Because there's such little macular degeneration with these people, if we take out her cataract, is there a good chance she'll see well? Yes, v- very good chance. Maria and the other centenarians I met were all over 100. Except for their cataracts, their eyes and overall health was really amazing. I couldn't help but wonder what this said about the people I see in the States, whose eyes, health, and bodies were in far worse shape, despite being decades younger. I wanted to know how and why our society accepted chronic and systemic diseases as some new normal. That being not sick meant being healthy. Coming from the United States and examining many patients, it's really very interesting to see a man 100 years old who to be in such fantastic shape, but his eyes also to be in fantastic shape as well. I mean, he does have cataracts, but to show no, no signs of macular degeneration, the front of her, his eye looks very, very good. It's very impressive.
0: Yeah, I think he's unique,
1: and uh, all of these kind are unique, and we have to study more to, to see
6: what's happening
4: with them. <laughs> it, it's really incredible, too, when you know, watching, watching the film and, and uh, you know, some of the clips that we have in there, they're chopping wood and riding horses, uh, doing things that I would say most people would struggle to do when they're young and they're just keeping up with it. So what, what do you think, how do you think the millennials are going to react to the film? So over the past few years, I've been talking to everyone I know about this incessantly. And uh, one of my other biggest takeaways from the film was I didn't know what optometrists do. I had always thought, you know, you just go in, uh, you read the chart with the letters and you get your eyes examined. And then uh, in my case, have to get glasses or contacts. Um, and what i learned since doing the film and talking to everyone I know, most people and most millennials in general don't know what you guys do. Um, I think the film is going to be incredibly eye-opening to people on why they need to go visit their optometrist. I know a lot of people my age now are doing online eye exams, uh, which we I actually did one as a test just to see how it would compare um, with the with the real experience. And a lot of people are doing that not going in to see their optometrist, getting like cheap glasses and cheap contacts that are causing them some problems. Um, And because they just think that optometry is uh, getting your eyes checked for new glasses, I think they're able to kind of take this shortcut around it. Whereas what I think the film does a great job of doing is uh, explaining, okay, wow, optometrists can see um, into your eyes using this, this uh, imaging machine. And from that, they're able to look at the microaneurysms and, and figure out if you, you might have some health problems. I think it's over 300 diseases can be detected through your eye. Um, and I think that that's going to be the biggest, oh, wow, to people watching, and especially people my age who maybe didn't grow up going to the optometrist uh, regularly. You know, a lot of people, uh, I mentioned earlier, my fiance. She had never been to uh, an eye doctor before her eyes started um, going, for lack of a better word, before she started becoming a little myopic. And she had no idea that, uh, that you guys were more than just getting glasses. Because I think uh, optometry d- didn't get the same kind of media attention that like dentistry did. Um, so I think that this film does a great job of, of getting that message out there, along with the message that we should all live kind of a healthier lifestyle and how important lifestyle is in general. Um, I think for millennials and myself included, I was not aware of how much lifestyle contributes to your health and your body and how quickly bad behaviors and, and choices, whether it be with food or lack of sleep or anything like that, how quickly those can have uh, negative impacts on your health. So the
1: way food is being manufactured now, is there enough vitamins and minerals in our food anymore
7: compared to what it was in the 50s? That's a great question, Kerry. I know when I first um, moved from the NIH into this industry, you know, where I thought maybe we could make a bit more impact um, that was a very strong theory, right, is that the carrots that you get today may not have all the nutrients that the carrots that your grandma um, grew. Um, I, uh, I guess that may be true. Um, certainly, uh, things are treated differently and we're, um, you know, the growth of the vegetables is sort of on a mass-produced level. I, I tend to think more in terms of diversity. Like, you know, when you think of a carrot, it's always orange, but actually, you know, a couple of hundred years ago, they were orange, they were purple, they were yellow. We had a greater sort of biodiversity of the vegetables and the fruits that we ate. Um, and, you know, this is what caused the, the problems in Ireland with the, with the potato blight, right? Is they had limited so much the genet- genetics of their potatoes that they didn't have any diversity when a disease came through and wiped everything out. And I think our body's the same. We need a lot of diversity in our diet. We have the opportunity in our modern times to eat better than the medieval kings we can get fruits and vegetables from all over the world shipped in it would be nice if we increased the diversity and i think too i do agree in my own house i grow a lot of my own vegetables it's all organic i sort of have this ecosystem where the, the chickens are being fed the scraps they're uh, creating the manure that goes to feed the, the vegetables and and uh you know, there's less need for insecticides and, and artificial fertilizers. I think there's a role for it, but I, I like diversity and I like uh, natural sort of growth of the vegetables.
1: At one time, they used to put 52 minerals to help grow the vegetables. Now it's just NPK. Mm-hmm. Is that enough?
7: Yeah, I agree. Probably not enough. But, uh, you know, plants, just like humans, need, uh, need all of the nutrients, not just sort of the sum. They're probably doing their own triage, right? And that's kind of interesting too, right? Is that uh, you grow the vegetables and uh, there's this, I, I'm not sure if you're sort of familiar with the hormetic effect, but yes. let's say I live in, uh, in Arizona growing we, the vegetables. Like
1: weightlifting, we, we stress. We want to stretch the vegetables to make more polyphenols and we could, the vegetable makes more
7: polyphenols. It's better for us. Yes, exactly. So if I'm living in a really hot, dry desert environment and I'm growing my vegetables there and I'm eating them there, those vegetables are experiencing the same hot sort of sun and all of the radiation. They are then their defense mechanisms create these polyphenols and, and carotenoids and other defense mechanisms that then we eat that become part of our defense mechanisms. So there's some sense to sort of keeping things local as well, isn't there?
1: So tell me about the EAR, the estimated average requirement, and the RDA, the recommended uh, dietary allowance are those enough? What are they? And, you know, we don't really use EAR, we use in the United States, really the RDA. And, you know, for a time that's thought that that may not be enough, that's just the minimum that
7: somebody needs. Right. Um, Yeah, I certainly can't quote all of the numbers for you. But just in general terms, um, there is a a real paradigm there. And that is that uh, when uh, nutritionists over the past few decades have calculated what we need, it's often generally the minimum that we require to prevent a deficiency disease. And in order to prevent scurvy, for example, you need about 60 milligrams of vitamin C. So it varies from country to country. I think in Australia, it might be 80 milligrams. Here, it's 60, but the scientists generally agree that will prevent the deficiency disease that's uh, you know really awful. And so you've got to get at least 60. But then if you, if you look at the literature, uh, you realize that, again, vitamin C is not a cofactor for only creating and and helping to build the collagen healthily, but there are other systems in the body as well. So if you look at Linus Pauling, he looked at vitamin C and said, well, you need like 20 grams a day. It has all sorts of impact. Um, Maybe I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. Certainly I think 500 milligrams, something like that is important because it's also an antioxidant. So it plays a huge role in other systems of the body um, not just in the deficiency diseases. So, uh, and you can really extrapolate that to a lot of the vitamins and minerals. That doesn't mean that we sort of need to megadose, but um, but again, those uh, daily values are sort of a minimum requirement, I think, for the most part. And uh, again, it's our responsibility to take home messages: eat a diet rich in fruits and vegetables that's diverse, that has all of these vitamins and minerals in them. And as an insurance policy, as Bruce Ames would say, you know, take a multi. Not that doesn't have to be that expensive.
1: And how about bioavailability? How do we make sure we're getting these vitamins into the body so we can use them?
7: Yeah, that's really important as well. Um, there's, um, you know, you, you look at uh, the way that things would normally be delivered into the body, right? Say iron, for example. You know, the CDC would recommend for a pregnant woman to have 60 milligrams of iron based on uh, iron oxide as a supplement. Um, but we do know that, say, if you're eating meat and it's and it's chelated with the heme molecule, you need less and it's easier on the stomach. There are some uh, enterprising companies that have come up with chelated minerals. Kind of started in the uh, agriculture area, but uh, but you know now you can buy really nicely chelated iron where you only really need about 15 milligrams to get the same impact, and it's more gentle on the stomach. Um, so yeah, bioavailability is super important, and it also is important in the way that we get our nutrients uh, the way that we eat so uh, you may remember Kerry back in the 90s uh, you know the devil was fat right Uh, everyone's overweight because we're getting too much fat in our diet and so the food industry sort of shifted pivoted towards uh, fat-free and everyone you know even fat-free salad dressing and and that I think messed up a lot of bioavailability type uh, paradigms for example Think of a salad that you're eating that's rich in carotenoids and polyphenols. Carotenoids, for example, are fat soluble. The vitamin E is a fat soluble nutrient, and uh, you know some olive oil, uh, you know some real fat on that salad actually helped your body to uh, help those carotenoids to be more bioavailable. And uh, and suddenly we're not getting all that we can out of the salad because we've sort of shifted erroneously, I believe, towards a sort of a fat phobic mentality. Um, and there are other things that you can do as well. You might ask someone, well, you know, what's more bioavailable in terms of carotenoids, a, a raw tomato or a raw carrot or cooked? And it's maybe not all that intuitive, but steamed uh, carrot is going to be more, have more bioavailable carotenoids than a raw one, uh, even though, sure, I don't discourage you from eating raw, but, uh, you know, if you crack open those cells and make those you know, carotenoids more bioavailable, uh, then that may be helpful. How about
1: if you put it in a blender or you juice it? Is it, I, is it what, what happens then?
7: Uh, yeah, you know? I, I, I do that all the time. I mean, every day I'm juicing kale and carrot and beet and apple. And um, so I, it makes it easier to digest. And I, I would think more bioavailable as well. So yeah, I'm a real fan of juicing.
1: You know, OCT has really changed optometry, you know, for so much of the better and it really helps our patients. We can now see down to five or six microns with OCT and with spectral domain, we're going to be able to see one micron. So we're kind of put in a position where we're going to see disease way before other uh, primary care
5: doctors can see disease. Oh, absolutely. Um, and we're starting to do that now, right? Uh, we see uh, especially in the patient with diabetes, We're picking up the capillary changes that are out there, macular degeneration. Uh, we're picking up uh, you know the drusen formation uh, that's out there. So you are 100% correct. Uh, you know We're picking up diabetic retinopathy before it's really retinopathy that you would see with a 78 or 90. The classic, um, you know, what I would say maybe the macro changes that we were taught in school. The the dot and blood hemorrhages and the exudate. Now we can start seeing the micro changes that are out there.
1: And soon we're going to be the first doctors that are going to help diagnose Alzheimer's sooner. There's some changes on OCT as far as Alzheimer's. If you could talk a little bit about that.
5: Yeah, so you know, the eye is fascinating, right? It really is connected to to just about everything that's out there. You know, we talk of, you know, skin, and then we have. Uh, then we have the vasculature that we're talking about here with diabetes. And now you're, you're, just talking the neurological side of it. And there's a part of the eye that's called the, the ganglion cell and the ganglion cell body. And it's axon goes all the way, you know, back into the brain, deep into the brain. And whenever it becomes sick or traumatized, you know, be, it, it atrophies away. So the ganglion cell complex, which can be measured, Uh, within the uh, OCT can take on some certain patterns that are out there. Um, Believe it or not, uh, just recently they're saying that, you know, people that have, you know, pituitary adenomas, and we're used to picking that up maybe with a confrontation field, bitemporal hemianopia, and, uh, um, you, you know, we do a visual field, it's showing, so bitemporal, binasal can show up maybe two to three years earlier, but even before the uh, the visual field defect, which then goes back to your original question here, the neurological side with regarding you know Alzheimer's and dementia, and maybe helping uh, the docs with the diagnosis, and then how's the treatment going with the progression? So really exciting stuff uh, that's out there for the future.
1: Yeah, and the, the, we could see that the choroid is starting to get thinner; those blood vessels are dropping out, and some of the capillaries start dropping out. So. Right now, there's nothing specific that says, "Okay, well, this is Alzheimer's," but hopefully, we're going to get there uh, within the next five years, and, and neurologists are going to be referring to us for OCTs to confirm whether or not somebody may have Alzheimer's. So, if we look about the, at the future of OCT, how could OCT maybe be used during surgery? Uh,
5: well basically where it's being used for surgery right now is in the, the macular hole type of situation when they're doing epiretinal epimet- membrane peels and looking at that at that at the hole just to make sure that uh, they're getting the the position of that macula so um you know just before and after surgery especially after surgery, uh, to see how that hole is and do they have to go in and reposition? So, you know, that's really some new cutting edge using it during surgery, just in retina surgery is basically what it is. That's really where the, the OCT shines, you know, but this OCT it's, you know, you've got anterior segment now. So we're looking at it with, with cornea. We're looking at it just Anterior chamber, everything that's going on with the anterior chamber, and then going back to the retina. So basically, where it's being used in surgery would be back in the retina side.
1: We're almost like we're a pathologist, the way we could look at the retina and and the nerve tissue.
5: Yeah, you you nailed it. This is pathology in a sense, live live pathology in a sense. So just a different form of it. And now
1: we have OCT angiography, which was which came out around 2014. Explain what OCT angiography is, and how that could help us with uh, diagnosing different diseases in patients.
5: Yeah, so we always say that the, the crime must fit the punishment. So, like, there's two types of OCTs. If you really kind of want to think about it, there's your B scan OCT, which uh, optometrists, you know, whenever you when I do a lecture and you ask how many people have uh, OCTs, that's probably about. 70 to 90 percent, depending on what audience you're doing, 70 to 90 percent will raise their hand saying that they have an OCT. It's the B scan. It's kind of that cross-sectional that we're used to seeing. And you're right. In 2014, what happened is with spectral domain and being able to get these instruments to get up to about 70,000 scans per second, what what they were able to do with the technology is what's moving versus not moving, which in that case, the blood would be moving the red blood cells and the white blood cells. And they're able to track movement and subtract out what's not moving. And you get a nice image of the capillaries uh, of the inner retina, particularly that's superficial in deep plexus. Now we always say the crime must fit the punishment. And the diabetes is a capillary disease. So we're really getting some early detection with capillary dropout before you get the B scan changes. Same thing with macular degeneration. We're able to get choroidal neovascular membranes, especially those occult ones, growing down below the RPE, because fluorescein angiography can't see below the RPE. And we're starting to pick up on these capillaries from macular degeneration. So really, the two big diseases where OCT angiography shines, where the crime fits the punishment, would be diabetes and macular degeneration.
1: So let's get into it. What exactly is glaucoma?
8: I think that you did a fantastic description. I think that we need to reset our understanding of glaucoma. And I think that the concept of Alzheimer's for the optic nerve is really a really interesting way of thinking about it. And I do think, Carrie, that we should be thinking about glaucoma as a neurodegenerative disease because, in fact, it is a neurodegenerative disease. The optic nerve in glaucoma is what degenerates. Um, And there are a lot of things that people talk about, you know, in terms of pressures and trauma and drops. And there's a lot of shrubbery I like to talk about, you know, in terms of, of like how the confusion of what is glaucoma, is it pressure, is it this, is it that. But the reality is it's really important to focus on the anatomy and the physiology of what's going on. And it comes down to it's the optic nerve dying off. And people have to, under, when I try to explain glaucoma, it really is an optic nerve degeneration. It's, it's like you're, and, and of course the optic nerve is, essentially like an extension of your brain. So Alzheimer's disease is where we start to lose cognitive function. And there's a lot of different components that go into why people, um, you know, develop Alzheimer's dementia and other types of neurodegenerative diseases in the brain and other parts of the body. But with, with the eye, it's the same thing. It's a nerve. It's simply a nerve that's, that's losing function and starts to die. In fact, to be more specific, as, as you know, the optic nerve is really not a single nerve, it's a bundle of nerves. And I really like to emphasize, and I like to think about that the, that this nerve, which is basically brain tissue or neuro tissue, is dying off and glaucoma is the condition whereby this dies off. And that is, that's a very simple description, in my opinion, of the process, but the, what's actually causing it, just like Alzheimer's disease, what causes it and how to fix it, obviously is is, is challenging because it's a neurobiology base. It's, a, it's something that's based in neurobiology.
1: Somebody that has glaucoma, is there a greater risk for them to get Alzheimer's disease later on?
8: There are some studies that do indicate that people who have uh, have glaucoma do have a higher risk of Alzheimer's, but it may not be, as simple as as what the the description is. In other words, it might be that the risk factors that go into getting Alzheimer's are the similar are similar to the risk factors that go into getting glaucoma. And so the answer is yes. If you know if you if you develop glaucoma, your risk uh, in some studies show that you do have a slightly higher rate of Alzheimer's. But that may have nothing to do with the specifics of like getting glaucoma and then getting Alzheimer's it just may be for instance if you have a high inflammatory component um, in your nervous system so like they think that Alzheimer's disease it's a huge it's an inflammatory disease to some extent a vascular disease and it's the same thing for glaucoma it's like the same idea is like if you have heart disease um your chances of getting stroke are higher but just because you get a heart just because you have a heart attack doesn't mean you're going to get a stroke it's just the risk factors are the same and that's exactly the same thing. That's true for Alzheimer's disease and and glaucoma.
0: MacuHealth, Health, your science-born and tested solutions for
5: visual performance, macular degeneration, and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon. Embrace the science.
1: The All Eyes Visual VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies. To enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases, visit AllEyes.com for more information. We've always thought that glaucoma meant high pressure in the eye. Is it, is it that simple, or is it more than that?
8: Right. It's so it's so much more complex than just pressure. And in fact, if you look at the um, if you look at the uh, definition of glaucoma by the American Glaucoma Society (AGS). Um, and other definitions, pressure does not even enter into the definition of glaucoma because it's the same, like, it's the same thing as Alzheimer's disease. Um, you know, what, what, one of the things that we think causes Alzheimer's disease is, um, you know, basically, you know, having the bad health terms of, excuse me, like having bad heart disease or having high cholesterol. So it's the same kind of thing that with, you know, just because you have high cholesterol, and you get Alzheimer's you know and that puts you at bare risk for Alzheimer's the same thing is true for um, for glaucoma if you have heart disease um, and the same process that goes into causing heart disease can also cause glaucoma it's the same thing that it may be that there are other other factors that go into causing the pressure to get higher pressure is really um, in some respect a, an indicator of other processes going on in fact you know there are some indications, and this is there's some really interesting studies that indicate that pressure um, is you know really unless the pressures very very high, even a moderately elevated pressure doesn't always guarantee you to get glaucoma. Um, in fact, there are so many patients who are who exist right now who have elevated eye pressure. And, and don't have glaucoma, and just the opposite is true. That there's a good number of patients, some something like the order of like 20 or even 30 percent of all glaucoma patients may actually have normal pressure and actually have glaucoma because again, it's the nerve that's getting damaged, and whether the nerve, you know, it's not just pressure. Pressure may be a result of other systemic inflammatory conditions in your body or heart disease or vascular problems. So the pressure may be just one sort of an indicator it may just be a side effect, so to speak, of the of, or it may, it may even be the body's response to trying to, per, to protect the nerve uh, in a crazy way. Um, we just you know it, there may be some a, you know aspects of why the pressure goes up that actually is the body's way to protect the nerve. Just like with macular degeneration where blood vessels are going in and causing all this problem, And with macular degeneration, the blood vessels may actually be trying to attempt to to heal the problem. In fact, it doesn't. We don't want to get into macular degeneration. But it's a very complex uh, process. And I think you really have to think about glaucoma as a, as a, a large number of issues, a large number of risk factors that can go into damaging this nerve. 16%
1: 16% of people who get glaucoma actually go blind in both eyes. Can you explain the difference between blindness from glaucoma and say macular degeneration and some other eye diseases?
8: Yeah, and we might want to go back to what is blindness. I mean, blindness basically means that your central vision goes down below, I think it's 2200, Best it's the best abil- the ability to vary. To the best, correct somebody. So it's not without glasses. I'm saying when you have contact lenses or glasses, the best you can get is 20 over 200 in terms of visual acuity. And the issue, the question then is whether um, you know, with with any kind of blindness, if that if that central visual acuity goes down, um, then we we hit that definition. So the difference, for instance, with glaucoma um, is that uh, it doesn't always affect the central vision often it affects the peripheral vision your side vision so, or or chunks of your vision so you could have you could have like part of your vision in glaucoma can be perfectly twenty twenty, but then another part is you just have it's complete blackness and blindness in that in that section so think of the you know the world that you're looking at you know if, if it would almost like imagine like a keyhole or like some kind of a, of a pac-man kind of, a, of a appearance to how you see the world. Like you see everything except there's a little Pac-Man bitten out of the circle uh, where, you, where you can't see it. Um, and like a, like a wedge defect almost, like a wedge of vision that's just gone. So that could be in your central vision, but sometimes it's in your peripheral vision in glaucoma. Um, in the case of macular degeneration, it usually hits the center part of the vision. So the types of blindness you have in the different diseases are is very different depending on the disease process and the type of um, you know, condition you have. But the end result is that your central vision goes. Now there are definition, I mean, you know, you can, you can um, in some cases in retinal diseases, you can actually have the peripheral vision um, can, can, um, can be maintained and the central vision's gone. Uh, and then in glaucoma, you could actually have just the opposite. You could have almost perfect central vision in fact, you could have a very, very, very small little area right in the center of your vision that's absolutely perfect and crisp, but then you can only see, you can't see anything beyond this very, very narrow tunnel vision. That can also happen in retinal disease, by the way, as you know. As you know.
1: Uh, so it's often said it's not what you eat, but it's what you absorb
6: or your microbes eat. What is your feeling about that? You know, for many, many years, we've been uh, completely obsolete uh, concerning, you know, this, you know, community that we co with and, you know, we can, uh, you, you we share our uh, life journey. Um, you know, in the past, we thought that, you know, that we, there were some microorganisms there that can eventually, you know, give us trouble. And that's mainly what we were focused on. And, you know, once in a while, Mother Nature reminds us, like this pandemic, that the war with the microbes is not far by any stretch of imagination. But that was a, a, a myopic, uh, <laughs> to use all you know, you know, ophthalmology terms, um, view, because the vast majority of microorganisms actually they are very friendly with us. They really want to have a peaceful relationship with us because we want mutual you know, benefits. In exchange of hospitality of food that we provide to them, they will really give an exchange a variety of um, um, benefits that we just recently start to appreciate. You know, they help us to, um, you know, uh, scavenge the, the ideal amount of nutrients from food. Some of the food that we have, um, fibers, for example, we cannot make use of it and and they will eventually scavenge uh, you know additional uh, nutrients for us they provide you know essential vitamins that we don't have enough uh, intake with with the nutrition but most importantly and that's where you know the vast majority of the science is fo- f- focusing right now the microbiome this ecosystem mainly the one in the GI tract really program our immune system Specifically, in the early part of life, for the first thousand days of life, to decide if, when, why, and how to unleash, you know, weapons that will defend us against enemies, and when to turn this off. So that's that's where really we start to appreciate that this goes way beyond just providing food to the uh, folks, but you know, again. Um, having the friendly symbiotic relationship with this uh, parallel world will bring us in a trajectory to play our genetic cards in a way that we will live a better life.
1: Hippocrates said all disease begins in the gut. The more you study this, are you starting to believe this to be greater, more truth
6: or less truth? I, now almost 15 years ago, You know, um, not Hippocrates, of course, is by by support of Hippocrates, but I I rephrase this and I say that the gut is not like Las Vegas. What happened to the gut does not stay in the gut. Meaning that, you know, depending how we interplay with these microorganisms, uh, how they, uh, you know, set up the ecosystem and so on and so forth, leads to consequences, not just in the GI tract, but any organ and tissue or district of our body may be affected in a for better or for worse depending on how we establish this relationship is a friendly relationship then will again will be protected and we will mitigate inflammation that it's the common denominator of all diseases you can imagine um, if on the other hand we have a belligerent microbiome that doesn't play you know fairly with us then we have consequences and we will have a, you know, would be more prone to develop inflammation and therefore to not live a, a, a good life.
1: The modern parent is running after their kids with antibacterial soap. Are we too clean
6: for our own good? I think so. Again, I'm not advocating that we have to go back in the cave and live like the caveman by all the stretch of the imagination. imagination. Um, but uh, you know, again, um, th- there is a, a, a proper line in which you want to have, you know, um, e- e- the hygiene uh, to mitigate the chance that uh, you will you are, and the people that live with you will be in trouble, and on the other hand, you know, um, to destroy this ecosystem. Let me give you a classical example because it's under our you know nose and eyes, i.e., uh, the, the the pandemic. Okay. There is no question that we were able, before that uh, vaccines were available, that we were able to really mitigate the the, the negative impact. And and we pay a dear price in terms of morbidity and mortality by washing our hands, keeping distance, wearing masks, and so on and so forth. The cost-benefit ratio call, in that case, to really implement hygiene, mitigates the spreading of a bad, bad microorganism, this virus that we never dealt with. Conversely, it's pretty obvious, the flip of the coin, that if you live in a rural area together with animals, you put, in other words, your your hands in your dirt and so on and so forth, that helps tremendously to mitigate the risk to develop, let's say, allergies or, you know, other chronic inflammatory diseases. Uh, so this this is a long way to answer your question. You know, it, it, it depends what the conditions of your life when you are under attack with a microorganism, you want to implement more strict hygiene. But, you know, in general, I, you know, we're getting too clean for our own goods. And if you compare, you know, the Western lifestyle you know, compared to rural developing countries' lifestyle, you know, they, they, the developing countries, they still live a lifestyle more in tune with our biological evolution, the way that we evolved as a species. We're not. And what happened is that these folks, they still pay a price with infectious diseases because they have malaria, they have cholera, they have, you know, um, you know dengue and so on and so forth. And, and but we we are not better off because in exchange of these acute infections, now we have these chronic non-infective diseases that are you know skyrocketing high autoimmune disease, neurodegenerative diseases, uh, neuroinflammation, um, you know uh, allergies. They are typical who embrace a Western lifestyle. Among the others is the the extreme IG.
1: What do you say to the parents that are running after their kids with the antibacterial uh, uh, solutions to kill the bacteria on their hands, on their face, on, and not letting them outside? What, what can you say to them to, to have them realize why it's important to, to about the hygiene hypothesis and be involved with the environment?
6: So, you know, the, the, going back to the microbiome, this is not something that is in a vacuum in a niche in the GI tract and is stable. It's extremely dynamic. And we are part of a much bigger picture that we don't realize. We really, you know, belong to and depend on the soil, the water, the air that are elements, the niche, where these microbes, they have divisor cycle. So if if we don't have a, a in tune, synchrony with our surrounding, if we pollute our water, if we do not have a healthy relationship with this, you know, circular life, so to speak, then this exchange of microbes that we continuously do between us and the environment, it takes the wrong turn. Now, you put the roadblock with this excessive You know, cleaning that circle of life that is meant to maintain this dynamic friendly symbiotic relationship will be affected, no matter how you want to see it again. I'm not saying that we have to go back to the cave. I'm not saying that, you know, hygiene is not important after all, you know, again. uh, You know, cholera, for example. If you, if you implement hygiene and, and the water you know, supply cleaning and so on and so forth, you stop the, the process of transmitting cholera, You know, SARS-CoV-2, if you wash your hands, you know, you eventually stop that. But this is not necessary all the time. Because otherwise, if you continue this excessive hygiene, you put roadblocks on this continuous exchange with the surrounding environment. And this is not good for our ecosystem.
1: Dive into the symptoms. What are some of the symptoms that a dry eye patient will experience?
2: Yeah, and and that's a great question, too, because um, there's actually 16 million people that are diagnosed with dry eye disease. But we feel um, as optometrists and ophthalmologists that there's probably a lot more that are out there that just don't realize that they have dry eye. So there's probably twice that number of people that have dry eye, but they just don't realize that they have it. So some of those symptoms are. Um, It can be a wide range from burning, stinging of the eyes, a foreign body sensation, the uh, redness, of course, um, worsening. uh, Sometimes it's worse in the morning. Sometimes it's worse at the end of the day. Um, So, And actually, it's kind of counterintuitive, but watering is, is a symptom of dry eyes. So your eyes are making enough of the quantity of tears, so the watery part of the tears, but it's not a good quality tear. So you probably don't have enough of that oil layer, the lipid layer. So the lacrimal gland is producing all these tears, but then they're just not staying in the eye. So it feels like they're watering. And a lot of times I tell my patients that, oh, well, you know, your eyes water, you have dry eyes. And they say, well, that doesn't really make sense. Um, But then when you explain it, they say, oh, okay, now I get it.
1: So explain why that happens.
2: Yeah. So, so your tear film has to be in a perfect balance. Um, We call it homeostasis. So you want, there's Right now, we're, we think we feel there's three layers of the tear film. There's some people that say there's actually two layers, but uh, traditionally there's three layers of the tear film. There's the mucin layer, which kind of holds everything together. There's the watery layer, which is, that's what we or, or aqueous is what we call it. We normally think of the aqueous layer when we think of tears, um, and then there's that lipid layer, so the top layer. And we really need all those three layers to be in a perfect balance. Um, and if not, then we get you know either the all the symptoms, so the dryness or or the watering. Um, so if you don't have enough of that water of that lipid layer then you're going to have that excess watering
1: if you go through the different layers from mucin Mm -hmm. to aqueous Mm -hmm. to lipid yeah what part of the eye makes each layer and what's Mm -hmm. the function of each part of the of the tears
2: yeah so the goblet cells they um are excuse me the goblet cells make the mucin layer and so the mucin kind of holds everything together the lacrimal gland makes the watery part of the tears. And the water part of the tears, that has all kinds, it actually has 1500 different um, components to it. So the tear foam is actually really, really amazing. All the different things that it can do from anti-inflammatory um, to, you know, just all kinds of different things that factors that we need to have a nice healthy tear and a healthy eye. Um, And then there's that lipid layer, which is made by those meibomian glands that are right in the right on the lid margin right there is where they come out where the oil comes out. So and that's that oily part of the tears that we need to keep everything stable.
1: Every once in a while we get a big strong guy, uh, like a military guy uh, comes into the office and he's at work and, and, you know, his, his all of a sudden his eyes are tearing and yeah. he gets very embarrassed that he's crying and he wants to know what we could do especially if he goes out in in in, in the in the wind and, he, and the wind hits his eyes and right. starts tearing what could, what kind of tricks can we tell people like this to help them
2: yeah so so i would definitely tell them and it is it is it's embarrassing to patients it 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 actually really affects their mental health you know and i have a lot of women who their eyes are really red, or they can't wear makeup because their eyes are so sensitive. Um, And you really feel for those patients because it it affects their lifestyle, and it it just affects their overall quality of of life, really. Um, And so for those watery um, ones, it's usually we have to fix those myboned glands. So we recommend that they go ahead and see their local optometrist um, and get a really good eye exam. Um, If you can find someone that specifically specializes or, or is more passionate about dry eye, that's even better because they might have extra tools like my biography Um, but you really don't need fancy equipment to be able to treat dry eye so if you get a really good exam um, they can give you great recommendations and some just sort of starter recommendations are Artificial tears, especially lipid-based artificial tears that are preservative-free. Nothing like Visine or Gets the Red Out, because those can actually make your eyes more dry if you use them for too long. So a nice artificial tear that's lipid-based, because that gets that oil back into the tear film. Then after that, we recommend... I'm
1: Sorry to interrupt for a second. Give us a recommendation on a lipid-based artificial
2: tear. Yeah, so th- there's quite a few out there. Um, I personally like Refresh uptive is a good one. Sustained Balance is a good one. Um, what else is out there? Retain, MGD. So there's, if you go to the pharmacy, it is a little bit overwhelming because there's so many options, but if you just look for something that um, it says just artificial tear, nothing that says gets the red out, and you look at those little vials that are preservative free, those are really the best ones. And it should probably say something on it about about a lipid-based, but those are a couple options for you. The All
1: Eyes Visual VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information.
0: MacuHealth with Micromicell, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromicell technology.
1: Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy.
6: OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit oiebroadcasting.com and sign up today.